Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. You know, from uh, time to time as I uh, meet people and uh, the topic of um, creation versus evolution comes up, um, a lot of people are obviously under the impression, well, evolution must be correct. So many scientists believe in um, evolution and, uh, you know, all the textbooks and so forth. One thing we need to remember is that most scientists believe in evolution because that's what they've been taught. And they've never been challenged, perhaps, to to think otherwise. And what happens is that they adjust their mindset to um, to actually see... Um, evidence for evolution or be blinded to the very obvious evidence for creation. Um, and so they you know, might see evidence for change in evolution without realise, well, hang on, this change is coming about as a result of loss of information, not as a result of new gaining of information. And this is a very important aspect. So some of these subtle features are lost when uh, people are being taught evolution, these uh, you know, finer details aren't being pointed out. So the fact that it's these finer details are glossed over gives the impression, yes, that evolution is a proven, established fact. And the other thing is, too, of course, that as our society becomes more and more secular, there are fewer people are reading the Bible, fewer people um, are being exposed to the um, massive evidence that we have um, just in our history and in the Bible itself for a creator God. And also that the, um, the Christian faith really just fits the evidence in, in the reality that we're around just so well. And also the, the evidence of changed lives by uh, the, the Christian faith. It was interesting, on the radio this morning, I heard a, a, um, a message on the news, and uh, you know I haven't checked this out yet, but essentially um, it was saying that in Afghanistan, a number of uh, the Islamic um, extremist fighters are going around and um, are going house to house looking for, for Christians um, to, um, you know, to, to deal with them. Um, and often, uh, unfortunately, uh, these people are, are killed um, or, or else forced to convert. Um, but um, the story talked about how in one particular area there are quite a number of Christians and there are a large number of, of Christians um, killed. Um, and then after that, um, an angel appeared to the leader of the... Um, of the uh, militant group that was doing this, and there was a um, a very large conversion of these men to uh, to Christianity themselves. Um, and uh, the commentator on the news said it, it it's sort of like a modern day uh, conversion, like Paul. And of course, the the Bible talks about um, and and we have the letters of Paul that uh, he wrote to the different churches, and and the account of Paul's journey written by uh, Luke in the book of Acts. Um, and um, and Paul is um, 
person who was uh, persecuting and, and killing Christians. Uh, um, in the early uh, times, as the, the Christian message that God had visited earth as Jesus Christ and had risen again, which was the proof that he was God. Um, and as this was spreading through um, the, the world at that time, uh, of course, um, uh, a man named Saul was um, actively engaged in stamping it out and rounding up uh, these Christian believers. Um, and he himself had an experience where God himself, Jesus Christ himself, appeared to him and spoke to him. And that led to his conversion and, uh, and very strong faith to the point that he even got to witness to the, to the emperor um, in in Rome, uh, of course, he was executed. Uh, but um, his um, his life then just totally changed, and what he went through because he realised Christianity was so real. And of course, we don't uh, hear of many of those, um, you know, such dramatic experiences today. So that was why I was very interested to hear that on the the news today on the um, on the on the radio of a similar experience being reported in Afghanistan at um, at this present time. But you know, there are countless books uh, written of uh, people's experiences of of God. Um, and uh, miraculous interventions of of God, um, and of course the evidence is overwhelming that that Jesus was God. Um, and, I mean, with, and just the fact with um, his resurrection, it would have been very easy to prove just by um, you know recovering the body and producing the body would have simply discounted uh, Jesus' resurrection. And we need to also recall that the disciples at that time didn't believe that he would be resurrected. They hadn't understood. Uh, so, And they'd gone to the tomb to prepare the body for, for burial, of course, uh, to finish the preparation. So there's overwhelming evidence, um, you know, historically for Jesus' resurrection, which is a, a supernatural event. And it's something that he claimed. When you read about what Jesus did and what he claimed, it all makes sense and it adds up with the historical evidence that follows and all down through history. But we also have the evidence for God in in nature, in science and you know, I've, uh, I think one of the very strong um, uh, scientists and, and Christians who are, are pointing this out is, is Professor John Lennox, the mathematician and philosopher at uh, Oxford University, although he's emeritus now, retired. But, you know, in his arguments with uh, atheists, he points out, look, the fact that we are here, the fact that we exist points to some sort of supernatural beginning. Now, when you, when you look um, at what the, the secular physicists are trying to believe in, what they have to believe in in terms of the origin of our universe is that somehow from nothing the universe created itself. I mean, uh, you know, there was a, a new program just coming on television at the moment um, about, you know, on cosmology and the origin of the universe. And and this is it. This is what they, they come to. And when you think about it, there's either got to be something or nothing. 
Now, why isn't there just nothing? Now, obviously, there isn't nothing because we're here. You know, I'm here. I'm talking to you now. I'm sitting in this recording studio and there's a timber bench I'm putting my hand on and so forth and clock. I'm surrounded by reality. We can touch it, we can see it, we can feel it. It's real. It exists. It's made up, all these things and us are made up of atoms bound together by chemical reactions um, and chemical bonds. And um, I'm sitting on a chair and I have to exert a force to get up against gravity. Um, so all these things exist, but why should they exist? Why, why should anything exist? But we do exist. Now, one of the important points that um, John Lennox points out, of course, is that the whole universe itself and its structure and its makeup points to a beginning, a creator. And, of course, that's why these scientists are scrambling to try and figure out some you know, theory to explain. As I've explained in you know, talks previously, the Big Bang Theory just doesn't cut it. It just doesn't work. We try all the maths. The predictions don't work out. It doesn't fit what we observe. It doesn't fit the data. And, you know, the proponents of the Big Bang Theory have to contrive all sorts of, you know, imaginary theories, you know, like inflation and so forth that are totally unprovable. And um, there's actually no evidence for them either. So, you know, we're, we're left with... Okay, how did we come to be here? But the Bible says that we are created by a non-physical being, a a being that is outside space and time, that's non-material, that has always been there, has always existed. Now, it's a bit hard for our minds to understand that, but it makes sense. It makes sense that there's this non-material existence that has always existed, all right, and that that has the ability to create this universe. Just like our non-material thoughts have the ability to affect electrical voltages, to affect the, the material world, our non-material thoughts in effect can affect this material world and, and we can make things. We can move our arms and, and legs and so forth and do things and we can be creative. And it's fascinating, of course, that the Bible talks about that we as beings were made in the image of God. And I think, you know, well, obviously we're not spirits, but it seems to me that our mind, if God is non-material, then what part of us is non-material? It's our mind. So our minds are made in the image of God. And to me, this makes so much sense too, because we can understand the creation around us. We have learned to understand how molecules and atoms and force fields um, and so forth work and understand these things. And, and quite early on, we man learned how to uh, smelt metals, to make tools, to utilise the amazing natural resources that we have. You know, I, I love timber, and, and, and wood is such an amazing, um, self-replicating, self-replenishing material for building. There are all the different types of trees that have all different properties, you know, from the light balsa wood that you can make the model aeroplane frames out of and and they're so light and less dense through to teak that can be so beautiful and yet so heavy and very rot-resistant and so forth. Hewan pines and all the different timbers that... Uh, are around and and some with the beautiful structures to make beautiful furniture like walnut and so forth. 
And so there's so much here that, you know, points that our mind was created in that way. And so this is one of the important points that John Lennox uh, points out. Look, you know, the universe had to have an origin and and, uh, a creator. There's so much evidence for that. You know, where did the laws of physics come from? Where did the laws that constrain the energy fields that enable the nuclear reactions to occur that, you know, that you know account that um, account for the energy generation in stars and all this sort of thing. Um, where did those laws come from? Um, that design, you know, that designed the structure of atoms and the atomic particles within them, and so forth. Did they all just randomly somehow come from nothing? You know, it just doesn't make sense. The Bible makes so much sense in what it describes, and. As it talks about God, it talks about God in a way that makes sense compared to all the other religions that I've had any knowledge of. Um, you know, Christianity and oh, Judeo-Christian, you know, as, as Christianity, of course, is the culmination of the of the uh, you know the Jewish faith from faith from the Hebrews. And uh, so, one of the other areas, of course, that fascinates me is the evidence too from chemistry. Because you know, I trained as a, an industrial chemist, and um, and this is an area that you know I see there is just overwhelming evidence for, and I, I think as people try to explain life in you know, particularly biologists, um, I, I feel that they just don't understand the the chemistry behind this and how it's impossible for. The chemistry and the chemical and the biochemistry to have arisen by just chance, random mutations. Um, and it's interesting, I was reading an article by Carrie Wolf. Um, she has a PhD in uh, chemistry from the University of Nebraska in the US. And, and uh, she has um, an article in this uh, book that I've referred to several times recently. Uh, design and catastrophe. Fifty-one scientists explore evidence in nature. That's published this year by um, Andrews University Press in the United States, and and she has a chapter in its chapter thirteen titled uh, "Membrane Asymmetry Points to the Creator." And uh, she writes, as a chemistry professor, when I study nature, I see evidence of God as a creator. And she goes on and says, I've been teaching biochemistry for many years and I often teach about the structure and function of cellular membranes. Now, this is, uh, when you think about a, a cell membrane in the, you know, the whole evolution gram- gamut, this is so important because the membrane protects all the internal functions of a cell from the external environment. So if life had to form all these delicate, uh, interconnected biochemical reactions have to be protected. Other, otherwise, they're just going to be, you know, all just broken up and, um, you know, not coherent. They're not going to actually be able to set up a cyclical reproductive uh, system. And she goes about, goes on to say, the cellular membrane in living cells is composed of fats and proteins and a little bit of carbohydrate. And as I've pointed out, when we look at these these structures. And it's easy to say, you know, lipids, proteins and some carbohydrates. But these structures involve millions of identical atoms of dozens of different types. And so, again, you know, it's a major problem for evolutions. But anyway, 
She talks about the plasma membrane of animals and bacteria is essentially a fat biolayer that serves as a barrier between the inside of each living cell and its environment. And um, so uh, one of the little parts of this uh, bi, uh, uh, fat uh, of this fat biolayer or lipid biolayer um, is uh, exposed to the outside of the cell and uh, one is exposed to the inside of the cell or the cytoplasmic side. So that's cytoplasm as the name for the material inside the cell. And what she points out is that these two little layers, or she refers to them as leaflets, are different in composition and they're asymmetrical. That is, they're not symmetrical. And um, so these are made up of uh, what they call phospholipids um, and there's a whole lot of different types of phospholipids that are that are um, involved in these uh, ones. Um, but she says, um, and she lists, um, for example, uh, glycolipids, uh, sphingomyelin, uh, phosphodiloserine, um, and, and, and another uh, phosphatidylcholine, and um, phosphatidylinositol. And uh, she says these types of lipids are not randomly distributed between layers. Instead, the glycolipids contain the carbohydrates and are always found on the outer layer of the plasma membrane. They're never found on the layer that faces the cytoplasm. Sphingomyelin is also almost found in this outer part, whereas the um, phosphodoserine, however, is found primarily on the opposite side, on the inner side. Um, And so she asks the question, well, hang on, how does this asymmetry arrive? Um, And in the laboratory, when researchers work to assemble a lipid biolabor, the phospholipids and the glycolipids self-assemble in a random symmetrical manner, producing a bio-layer membrane with no asymmetry. So this is a major problem for evolution that she's pointed out. In other words, if you take these compounds, say these molecules formed in nature by themselves, right, and evolutionists expect them to form a cell, well, she says what happens is they form a mixture. But in living cells, they're all separated so that only there's a certain type on the outside and a certain type on the inside. Now, again, when you say, well, it's only you know, a few atoms, maybe that can occur by chance. But hang on, no, 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 you can't have it that because you've got thousands of identical atoms, all uh, molecules rather, all have to align up on the right side. Thousands. Not just one or two, thousands. And we know from probability statistics that isn't going to happen. It just doesn't happen. Uh, The other thing she points out is that many proteins are found in biological membranes. Uh, Some are positioned across the membrane. They're exposed on both sides. Um, And these are called transmembrane proteins. And uh, some are pumps and channels. And others are receptor proteins. And these proteins need to be oriented in the membrane in the correct way. For example, if the ligand-binding protein side of a receptor protein is facing the 
extracellular environment and is able to bind to a hormone molecule, it will change the three-dimensional structure of the transmembrane protein, allowing the signal to be noticed and transmitted to the inside of the living cell. So it has to be facing a particular way to work and carry out its job. The pumps and channels also must be correctly oriented in the biolo so that the ions and molecules being moved across the cell membrane, and of course that's how the cell gets its nutrients, and so it's very important, are transported in the correct way. For example, the sodium-potassium ATP phase is an important pump in many cells. It always pumps the sodium ions out of the cell while it pumps the potassium ions into the cell. And this uh, requires the use of uh, cellular energy, which we call ATP, to pump these ions across the membrane, which sets up an ion gradient. Now, the ion gradient can then be used by other transmembrane proteins called secondary transporters to pump other important molecules or ions across the membrane. And so she gives an example of this. And so one of the examples is the sodium glucose link transporter which uses the sodium gradient to pump glucose into the cell. Sodium is allowed into the cell through this transporter as glucose is pumped in. These proteins and transporters never flip in orientation. That is, the protein channels and pumps do not experience transverse diffusion. Scientists have never found these proteins inserted into the membrane the wrong way. These specifically oriented proteins are another example of the asymmetry of cellular membranes. So can you see the issue here? That in nature, if things are being randomly sorted, we would expect some of these things to be proteins to oriented one way and some the other way. But no, they're always oriented the wrong one way. And again, it's not just a handful of them. Thousands of them are required in each cell. So this is a major problem for evolutionary theory, for evolutionary biology. The chemistry and the specifically designed asymmetry, which has function. It's functional asymmetry. And so when we look at the statistics of these sort of structures forming by random chance, it's absolutely impossible. It's not going to happen. And we can't make them happen. We can make the chemicals in the laboratory. We can attempt to assemble, but they don't assemble the right way. They can't assemble because they assemble as mixtures. And even if a few did randomly happen to, by chance, line up, there's so few of them that the rest of them are all going to be random and so going to destroy and make the cell non-viable. It's absolutely impossible for thousands of molecules, of at, uh, yes, of molecules of these different types to line up just the right way. And so we can see that life is a miracle, but there's more. She says, um, another attribute of the asymmetrical distribution of the phospholipids in cellular membrane is the intrinsic membrane potential or non-zero transmembrane potential of the plasma membrane in living cells. This membrane potential is caused by the positively charged head groups uh, of uh, these um, of the sphingomyelin and uh, phosphatylcholine uh, on the extracellular side of the plasma membrane and the net negatively charged head group uh, that is on the inner side. Um, and this transmembrane potential, again, is linked to a whole range of uh, varied physiological phenomena.
Of course, uh, there are actually uh, times when uh, phospholipids are occasionally able to flip from one leaflet of the biolabor to another, undergoing spontaneous transverse diffusion. But this occurs for a purpose. It's very interesting. So while this flipping diminishes the asymmetry, after a phospholipid flips into the wrong leaflet, it is usually placed back into its original leaflet by special proteins in the cell membranes called flippases. Now, isn't that amazing? So in other words, if a phospholipid does, by mistake, get randomly inserted the wrong way, there are already proteins there called flippases, enzymes, that recorrect it. Um, uh, and uh, she says, for example, phosphor Tetyldoserine is found mostly on the inner leaflet of the plasma membrane. When it flips to the leaflet facing the exterior of the cell, the flippase notices the phosphatidylserine molecule in the wrong place and flips it back to the inner leaflet. This is important for the cell because when phagocytes or macrophages notice phosphatidylserine molecules exposed to the outside of the cell, they recognise this and assume that the cell has experienced cell death and the phagocytes are signalled to destroy and remove the cell that has phosphatidylserine in the outer bilayer. In this case, the asymmetry of the phosphatidylserine bilayer excluded from the outer leaflet saves the cell from being destroyed by other cells. Now, isn't that amazing? But again, this points out that everything is designed to preserve the actual structure, not allow for random changes. And um, she goes on to write, I've wondered how this asymmetry was originally set up in a cell. A cell would not be able to function for long if the phospholipids and protein channels or pumps were inserted randomly in the cell membrane. If the asymmetry wasn't initially present in a living cell membrane, the iron gradient needed for other cellular processes would never be established and the cell would quickly die. While thinking about this problem, I was stopped in my tracks when I read this line in my biochemistry textbook. This absolute asymmetry is preserved because membrane proteins do not rotate from one side of the membrane to the other, and because membranes are always synthesised by growth of pre-existing membranes. This implies that there must always be a pre-existing membrane from which further cellular membranes may grow. This information fits the model in which the creator could design and create the original cell membranes with absolute asymmetry of the lipids and proteins in them. Now that's amazing, very powerful evidence from biochemistry of a creator. Very, very powerful evidence. And of course... We know um, from the Bible that that creator was Jesus Christ, uh, who became our saviour. The world is running down. It's because of evil. God wants this uh, amazing being outside space and time, wants to eliminate evil. And so people make a choice. We make a choice whether we're going to follow God and be in his kingdom and want to do the right thing, or just continue on and follow our own will and do evil things. And I would like to encourage everyone who's listening, if you haven't done so, choose good. Don't choose evil. Choose God. Choose God's way. And you can read about it in the Bible, especially in the, the book of John in the New Testament. 
You've been listening to Faith and Science. If you want to re-listen to these programs, um, just Google 3abnaustralia.org.au and click on the Listen button. I'm Dr John Ashton. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 